will finish today and also 26. I'll just highlight certain things because there's just a lot in it. I don't want to overload the circuits, so uh, we'll point out a few things. So Jeremiah 25, verse 12, is where we left off. Give you a chance to find it. Jeremiah 25, verse 12. It says, Then it will be when 70 years are completed. We spoke about that last week. Why 70? What's significant? Uh, it's about Babylon coming upon ancient Israel, taking her captive and away into bondage for 70 years. This text says, when that's over, I, the I being God, will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. Explain this to me. How could it be that God would use the king of Babylon to do this and then hold the king of Babylon responsible for doing this? Yes, sir. Oh, I love what you said. He uses but doesn't excuse. This is very well said. Thank you. All right, let's move on. Um, He is sovereign and can make use of evildoers, but it doesn't absolve the evildoer of responsibility. Earlier, God referred to this man, interestingly, as my servant, king of Babylon, meaning God could put to use good people and bad people with regard to the accomplishment of his own purposes. That That's what divine sovereignty means. But it doesn't absolve one of individual responsibility. So at the end of it all, God says, I'll judge. And I'm going to skip a little bit, if you don't mind. Verse 14, many nations, great kings will make slaves of them. I will recompense them. In this case, the them is the Babylonians. According to their deeds and according to the work of their hands. Historically, it happened. In uh, 539 B.C., the mighty Babylonian Empire, which had influence worldwide, came to an end at the hands of Cyrus, who led the Medo-Persian Empire. So history bears out that this prediction actually came to pass. So the mighty Babylonian Empire, it surely was, has ceased to exist. God said it. It happened. And then the text goes on in verse 15 to speak about something referred to as the cup of the wine of God's wrath. It's a metaphor, of course. It's not a literal cup. It means God has contained his wrath up until now. will unleash it at this point upon the then existing nations of the world. Jeremiah's day. He will make nations drink of the cup of his wrath. So he commissions Jeremiah to take this cup, nation to nation, and they will drink of it. In other words, it's another indication of the sovereignty of God over the nations. Every nation will give account. Be concerned, dear folks, please, of the day in which we live. Be so concerned that you do what God would have you do to deal with things, surely through prayer, sometimes through protest, in in any way. But please remember always that the God you serve is the Most High God, and the nations and leaders will surely one day, ours and everyone else, give account to Almighty God. And so the text goes on, and we see the list of the nations to whom uh, 
God sends Jeremiah, and who will experience his wrath? It starts with Jerusalem and the cities of Judah in verse 18. It ought to. The people who have received most privilege and who most squandered those privileges ought to be judged first, and they will. It says right there. But then it goes on, you notice, then to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his princes and people. Of course, you know where Egypt is. Then it goes on to speak about all the kings of the land of Uz, Uz. We don't know exactly where it is. Very possibly east of the Jordan River uh, in northern Arabia. But we don't know for sure. And then all the kings of the land of the Philistines. Now we know where they were located because the Philistines, a seafaring people, uh, came over probably from the Aegean Sea area and settled along the Mediterranean coast of uh, what we refer to as Israel today. And they, and they set up cities which are still in existence today. Some are mentioned here. Ashkelon, Gaza. Of course, you know about Gaza. You hear about the Gaza Strip a lot. It was a Philistine area uh, centuries ago. Ekron and the remnant of Ashdod. And then it talks about Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon. And that would be in present-day Jordan. Not the entire country of Jordan, but that's where these people groups would have been placed. And So it would be going from south to north. Edom in the south, Moab in the middle, Ammon in the north. Present-day Jordan. And then it goes on to talk about kings of Tyre and Sidon, or, or Sidon. That's in present-day Lebanon. So that would be on the northern Mediterranean coast, present-day Lebanon. Don't misunderstand. I didn't say the Lebanese people. Or I didn't say the Jordanian people. Or anything like that. We're talking about here at this point in Jeremiah's day. Okay, so... So God says these nations will be judged, even Dedan, Tima, Booz. We don't know where they are. And all who cut the corners of their hair. What does that mean? It has nothing to do with hair. You know, I read this and I got nervous. I thought, oh, no, it's me. Look at this. I paid $5 for this haircut. The moral of the story, you get what you pay for. I go to this place, <clears throat> great ladies. We have a bit of a language difference. They speak Vietnamese. I do not. But I have tried to um, be a witness to them over the almost two years in which I've been going. And thank God, you know, our church has a Vietnamese ministry. It's really quite wonderful. And so I've gotten literature from the people who head it up. And I could at least put it in the hand of these ladies. And when I come in, they, they, know, they know I'm a Christian. They go, oh, pastor, pastor. Good to see you. And that ends pretty much the conversation. But anyway, but at least I could put something in their hand. So then I, I, I sit, and whoever's available, they, they call me up, and you're in the chair, and three to four minutes later, you're done. So uh, my wife says, do they all scalp you like that? I said, no, this lady in particular, she's just kind of quick with the scissors. She said, well, why don't you wait for someone else? I said, I can't. I don't want to offend her. I've been witnessing to her, you know, if I don't do that, uh, you know, if I go somewhere, I'll offend her. My wife says, yeah, but you're offending me. Look at you. <laughs> she says, look at look at That's what she said to me. Yeah, accepts. That's what she does. Yeah. So that's why I'm sharing this. So you would pray for me and, you know, stuff like that. She called me Bozo. Yeah. I stood my ground. I told her, hey, that's Reverend Bozo to you. 
So there. So now she calls me Reverend Bozo. So treats me with respect. Okay. So, but it doesn't mean the haircut. You see, what, what I mean, people in that in a certain place in this day who cut the corners, they did it as part of their worship to false gods. That's what that. That's what that means. It's not about your hairstyle. Okay. And so then it goes on, talks about other places. Verse twenty-five. See the kings of Elam. Well, what do you think? The Elamites. What what modern day nation would they be in? Oh, no, not Turkey. But yeah, 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 Iran. But it's a Persian Empire. Elam is the Persian Empire. Yeah. So so Iranian people uh, uh, are traced back to the, uh, the the Persian Persian people. Yeah. So that's what this is speaking over here, and goes on and so on. Then verse twenty six. All the kings of the north, near and far, one with another, all the kingdoms of the earth, which are upon the face of the ground, and the king of, what does your Bible say? Shishak shall drink after them. So I want to share something with you that's weird. It's just weird. It's just strange. But but it has to be shared. We don't have any historical record of someone named Shishak. Well, we... Shadrach, it sounds like it, but it, but it's a different person. You're talking about Shadrach, that's right. This is a different person entirely. We don't know who he is historically. We do know this. When God says through Jeremiah, I'm going to judge all the others, then the, f- the, uh, the uh, finale of judgment will be upon this personage, mysterious person called the king of Shishak. So here's, here's the strange part I, I want to share with you. Um, I do not believe in Bible codes. I mean, see, years ago there was a book, you know, the Bible code. Remember that kind of deal? I just, it's just not the way God operates. Come on. You know, he's the God of revelation, not secrets. And he's surely not going to reveal his secrets to an unsaved Jewish author. The guy who wrote that book, Bible codes, doesn't even know the Lord. Come on. Why is he going to reveal something to an unsaved person? He's not going to reveal to you a son or a daughter. Yeah, I think he did. No question about that. And he did. He made plenty, didn't he? So so I'm not into the Bible codes. However, there's a very strong possibility that this word Shishak is not a word. It's a code. Yeah, so bear with me. It's probably something called a cryptogram. And it comes from a Hebrew custom called atbash, atbash, which is when you code or conceal actual words. Here's how it works. You take the letters at the end of the alphabet and put them in the place of the letters at the beginning. So if I want to code a word that begins with the letter A, I go to the end of the alphabet and I take the letter Z and put it in its place. Now, if the next letter in the word is B, what letter would I put in its place? Why? See how it works? It's like that. It's a, it's a thing. It actually exists. Hebrew at bash. When you decode the word shishak, a cryptogram, based on decoding principles, which we know about, based on Hebrew at bash, would you like to guess what word you come up with? Babylon. Yeah. So Jeremiah's writing. Why would he do this? Why would he conceal it? I'll tell you why. We know from the beginning of the chapter all this took place in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. You know what happened then? Nebuchadnezzar is on the gates of Jerusalem about ready to 
burn it down, slaughter the people, take them captive. Jeremiah's smart. He doesn't want to rub it in the guy's face. He knows ultimately what's going to happen to the king of Babylon. He's going down. But that's not the thing you, you sort of publicize when the guy's right there knocking on your door. So there's a possibility Jeremiah made recourse to Hebrew atbash to code or conceal uh, the name of the king of Babylon so as not to incense him even more. All right. I realize it's a little odd. Little st- now, now, what does this mean? Should you be going through the Bible looking for more of this? No, you should not. It's an exception to the rule. It's odd. It doesn't occur. God is the God of revelation. Just read the Bible. Don't look for secret meetings and codified cryptographic words. They don't exist in the Bible. I'm just telling you in this case, it looks like it does. Just in that, in, in that case. Okay. So then it says, verse 27, You shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel. By the way, does it say God of Babylon? God of Dedan? God of Moab? No, God of Israel. Please keep it in mind. Well, let me ask you this question. At this point, what was Israel like when this was written? Good, good guys or bad guys? They're bad guys. Was Israel walking with her God? No. Was Israel rejecting her God? Yes. Was she going after false? Absolutely, absolutely. Which why, is why I find it all the more remarkable that he still associates with her. Even at this point, he calls himself the God of Israel and says, drink, be drunk. It's a little graphic, but it says right here, vomit. This is what happens when a person drinks to excess. Of course, it's a metaphor for drinking in the wrath of God. Partake of it, realize its effects, fall and rise no more. That's what God's saying to the nations, fall and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. So let me ask you a question. Have you had coffee lately with a Babylonian? <laughs> the empire is over. It doesn't exist. It's gone. How does the mightiest empire uh, in the day s- suddenly, I mean, it's gone, never to rise again. But please answer me this. How is it? that the people of Israel become a duly reconstituted nation on May 14, 1948. Please explain this to me. How does a people group out of the land for 3,000 years, undeserving as can be, the most undeserving people group on earth? My people. How, How does that group, disenfranchised, beaten down, and having just come through a a holocaust in which six million of its own were burned in the gas chambers, how does that people group get to be reestablished after 3,000 years in its own land and survive on the day it declares its independence, an attack from its neighbors? (laughs) How does it survive it? And four or five others since then, Do they survive it because of their brilliant military strategy and wit and wisdom? No. They survive it because God still calls himself the God of Israel. And even though Israel was out of the land for 70 years, that's the point. She was out of the land for 70 years and then was brought back 
to the land. And it's been in and out of the land since then and has been brought back in May of 1948. Now, please, I must issue this disclaimer. It's not about Israel. I'm not trying to toot Israel's horn. It's about the character of God. When Israel was at her worst, God was at his best. And the same applies to you. That's why I'm tooting this horn. God made a promise to Israel. This is your land forever. No condition attached to it. Thank God, because she surely didn't meet any conditions. When she's at her worst, she forfeited not the land, but the enjoyment of the land. And you are a redeemed people also. And when you're at your individual worst, you're going to start wondering, oh God, is it over between you and me? Am I no longer your son, your daughter? Have I forfeited my salvation inheritance? And then I'd like you to look back on how God dealt with Israel. That's where she comes in. I'd like you to say, wait, God, when she was at her worst, you were at your best. I'm at my worst. Oh, God, I trust you. You can be at your gracious best. I repent. Revive me. Restore me to fellowship with you. You see what's at stake there? That's why I'm tooting this horn. If God has rejected and replaced Israel, he surely should have. If he had, then you're in jeopardy as well. Do you think we all walk a straight and narrow path that we're saved? Come on. We don't. The most important thing is what are you going to do to get back with him at that point? You're out of the land, so to speak. You're not enjoying your inheritance. How do you recapture the joy of your salvation? You do just what God told Israel to do. If you repent, you will remain in the land. You turn, you confess, you accept forgiveness. You get right with the God who loves you and who saved you. And you don't look back. You press on. Yet that's why I'm kind of tooting this. I had some the other day, Stuart, you're just doing this because you're a Jewish guy. Maybe, maybe, of course. I have a sensitivity to it. I'm just a human. But please don't invalidate what I'm saying just because I'm a Jewish guy. Please don't do that. Don't make it sound like it's a Jewish platform. I'm not trying to have a Jewish platform. God has no favorite people group at all. I try to emphasize how responsible I know we are, my people, for spitting upon God. I, please don't. I'm not trying to uplift any people group over another. I want to sustain our confidence in the gracious, merciful character of God because where sin abounds, grace superabounds. And if you doubt it, look at the Jews. Nobody has out-sinned anyone like my people. Nobody. That's why Paul could say, I'm the chiefest of sinners. He wasn't exaggerating. He was. He killed. He participated in murdering followers of the Messiah. And then he says, but we're... Where, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. So as God has been with Israel, he is, he is with us. If, if he doesn't have a future for Israel, don't you see, then we have reason to doubt, does he have a future for us? So, so I, I, I love the fact, do you know God still ref- thinks of you as his son or daughter? He still calls himself the God of, now you substitute your name here. Even when you're on the run from him. 
just as he did with Israel. He would have every right not to want to be associated with her, but he still calls himself the God of Israel. All right, enough. Maybe not enough. <laughs> New Testament, Romans eleven, twenty-five to 27. I don't want you to be uh, uninformed, brethren, of this mystery so that you won't be wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and then all Israel will be saved. That means there's a future for Israel. It's not a Jewish thing. It's a Bible thing. It says right there. Okay, so now we go on to chapter 26, if you don't mind. I'm going to skip a little bit over here. Chapter 26. Notice what it says in verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Well, wait a second. Something's wrong in the Bible. Beginning of the reign. See, in Jeremiah 25, we read that it took place in the fourth year of the reign of this very king. Now we're reading about, in essence, the first year of his reign. What does that show us? Not everything in Jeremiah is chronologically arranged. You have to know this. Most books of the Bible are, but not all. It just helps resolve confusion. So it looks like chapter 25 should record an event that took place before 26, but in fact, that's not true. <laughs> so, And that's because God is just not obligated to do everything chronologically. He's up to different purposes and different books of the Bible. So now we're reading of an earlier time than that recorded in the prior chapter. Jehoiakim became king in 609 B.C., and uh, here, in this time, God speaks to Jeremiah, and it says, verse 2, thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house. What's another name for that? Temple. Stand in the court, that would be the outer court, where people were permitted to assemble. Jeremiah, stand there. But here, here's the deal. There's a strong possibility that what's going on here took place in chapter 7. Gesundheit, man, that was healthy. <laughs> that was good. See, if you're going to sneeze, let it out. That was excellent. Really good. No, I appreciate it. It was like a tenor. It was like a, t it was a tent. So, in Jeremiah 7, God told Jeremiah, go to, go here, do this. So why are we reading about it again? Okay, so here's the deal. It appears that in Jeremiah is a possibility. In Jeremiah 7, it looks like the uh, point of emphasis was on the content of what Jeremiah had to say. Here, the emphasis seems to be on the response to what Jeremiah had to say. So that's kind of what's going on here. And you're going to see the response ain't too good. So Jeremiah stand in the court and speak uh, all the words I've commanded you to speak to them. Look what it says, verse 2. Do not omit a word. Why did God say that? Well, because he would have been tempted to. Because you know what he's preaching about? You're going to die. You're going to be judged. God's wrath is going to be poured out on you. Your city's being burned down. Your temple's going to be destroyed. You're being carried off into bondage. Well, that's not exactly designed to win friends and influence people. Look at here. If you want to build up a big church, that is not exactly, you know the sermon series to do it. 
That's why a lot of preachers and teachers today omit the words in the word of God that may offend the listener. But a real preacher or teacher doesn't have the right to edit the scriptures. We're not allowed to. So you can go to some churches and you're never going to hear stuff about death and dying and hell and judgment and wrath and any of the disciplines of the Christian life. You're not going to hear about suffering and affliction and how God works through and uses those things. You're not going to hear anything like that. What you're going to hear is what you want to hear. And what you want to hear is God wants you to be happy. Be happy. And I've been searching the scriptures. I just don't see any commandment that says that, that God commands us to be happy. But I did find this one. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, that's not a popular message. I would rather be happy. I want to be healthy. I want to be wealthy. That makes me happy. There's no such thing in the Bible. It says, be holy, for I am holy. So Jeremiah is going to be tempted, like all of us, to edit the scriptures and tickle people's ears, tell them what they want to hear. In other words, not the full counsel of God. We don't have a right to do that. None of us here. It's got to be everything, word by word, every phrase. So God God said, don't omit a word. Okay. So Jeremiah obeys. You know what Jeremiah gets? Smacked silly. Threats to his life. Good night. Doing the right thing does not always beget the right response. A negative, critical response to what you just said doesn't mean what you just said shouldn't have been said. It just means that what you just said was not responded to rightly. That's the way it is. So here's what happens. Jeremiah does his thing, and God says maybe they'll listen, and all the rest, and so on. And then here's what happens, verse 8. When Jeremiah finished speaking all that the Lord, all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, the priests and the prophets, religious leaders, and all the people seized him saying, you must die. Holy moly. Not exactly an effective church growth strategy. Wow. Don't like the message, kill the messenger. And that's what they're doing here. They want to kill him. And so uh, they're saying, why have you prophesied this way? Uh, in the name of the Lord, saying this house will be like Shiloh. Now, here's the deal. Interesting. Shiloh was a religious center prior to the construction of the temple permanently in Jerusalem. There, Shiloh was the temporary dwelling of the Lord called the tabernacle. The people disobeyed God again. As a result, the defenses were down. As a result, the Philistines came in unopposed in about 1000 B.C. They destroyed the tabernacle and beat up on the people in Shiloh and all the rest. God said, to ancient Israel and religious leaders in Jerusalem. If you don't repent, what happened to Shiloh will happen to you. And Jeremiah said that. Now, why is that important? Because the people in that day thought they had immortality, protection, thought they were invulnerable merely because they lived in Jerusalem and worshipped at the temple. No building, 
no place can protect a person from the holy wrath of God. Only repentance and acceptance of his mercy. So the religious leaders of the day were living a horribly unholy life, thinking, we're going to be cool. We're in Jerusalem. We're, we're at the temple. This is God's house. We're safe. But God wanted them to be his house, not the building. So Jeremiah comes on the scene and says, you're going down. This is like a capital crime because he's preaching against Jerusalem. See? So that's, that's why they want to kill a guy. You know, it's the equivalent, folks, of people today who think just because, I don't know, you have some denominational affiliation. Uh, you know, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Baptist, I'm a this or a that. That that absolves you of accountability to God and his righteous judgment. No, 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 no. Only faith connection to the Lord Jesus does that. A denomination doesn't give you safety. A building? Church? There's no such thing as a church building. It's the people who are referred to as the church. The building is just bricks and mortar. It doesn't give, it's, it doesn't make you impenetrably safe. Only the Lord Jesus does. Some people get baptized. For the wrong reasons. Not all. Some do. Interestingly, some people here get baptized and we never see them again. Why'd they get baptized? It's kind of like a shortcut to repentance. Instead of repenting and changing lifestyle, let me get in the magical waters. It's just a false attachment to a religious, to religious, I'm sorry, hocus pocus. Baptism means nothing unless it reflects a repentant heart filled with the Lord Jesus, then it's tremendously meaningful. It's holy. Otherwise, you just got wet. Some people partake of the Lord's Supper. Some, some, here, some call it Holy Communion, whatever you'd like to do. Some people do it, and they're just living terribly reprobate lives. But somehow they, they think, some, somehow if I do this, it'll be religiously magical and, and just absolve me of responsibility before God. The church cannot save, sacraments cannot save, a denomination can't save, a building can't save, a place can't save. The Savior can save. See? So the ancient Israel is pretty much like us. Oh, yeah, I'm religious. Yeah, I'm a Methodist. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Jew. I'm a this or that. I'm a Muslim. Good. That's not what I'm talking about. How have you established your safe connection to a holy God? Your religion can't get you there. Nobody's can. He has to provide the way. Jesus is the way. So anyway, this is kind of what's happening. That's why they want to kill this guy. And you know how people get upset. You say stuff about their religion and all that, and you say, that's very cool, but it's not going to save. People freak out. I mean, if you say something critical of Islam... So it's kind of the same, same sort of a deal. So I want to kill him. So then in verse 12 and on, Jeremiah makes a defense. I'll sum it up. He just says, hey, I'm just telling you what God told me to tell you. Second, he says, by the way, the problem is not mine. It's yours. Because if you listen to what God told me to tell you, he won't do what he told me he's going to do. Third, he says, 
On the other hand, if you want to kill me, kill me. Have your way. But you need to know this. You'll be shedding innocent blood for which God will hold you responsible. And then it says in verse 16, the officials and all the people said to the priests and to the prophets, the officials of the government leaders, they heard about all this commotion in the temple. They intervened. So the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, the religious folk, no death sentence for this man. He has spoken in the name of the Lord. Interesting. Wow. I'll tell you what else is interesting. See where it says all the people in verse 16? You see what all the people are doing in verse 16? They're saying, let him go. Check out what all the people wanted in verse 8. Could you go back to verse 8? Yeah, they want to kill him. So in verse 8, they want to kill him. In verse 16, they say, let him live. What does that tell you about people? Confused. Fickle. Sheep in in need of a shepherd. It's interesting. Someone can be running for political office and they're the Messiah. Until they get elected to political office. (laughs) Then you want to get rid of them. No sitting incumbent president has much of a chance. Not the last one, not the present one. People are fickle. What does that mean? Realize the tendency in your life, my life, and don't be that way. What do we do? Get anchored on the sure, settled truths of the Word of God. Otherwise, you're prone to every wind of doctrine. Just like sheep. Going this way, going that way, going this way. Have you read this new book? Have you heard this new speaker? Have you read this? There's a new twist. There's a new secret. There's a new Bible code book. There's a new... Come on. Fickle. Fickle, fickle, fickle. Be careful. God says it. Believe it. There are enduring truths. You know, people come up with new doctrine, new this, new that. What? What? So here they want to kill him in verse 8. They, they want to let him live in verse 16. Then what happens, uh, elders step up in verse 17. What are elders? Old people? Yeah, but not exclusively. It means those who had, were senior members of the religious community. They were spiritual leaders. So some of those uh, guys step up, elders, and they talk to the entire assembly of the people. It's like a public thing now. And they talk about an incident that happened about 100 years prior to this about a guy named Micah of Moresheth. They say he prophesied in the days of another king, Hezekiah. And he spoke to all the people of Judah saying, and now what they do here is directly quote the words of Micah, this Micah, as recorded in Micah chapter 3 verse 12. It's, this is what you're reading here in Jeremiah is a direct quotation of Micah chapter 3 verse 12. Why is that important? It just shows you, look how early on the, and scripture, the written words of the prophets of God were invoked as if they are authoritative. Even then, people were recognizing the mark of inspiration on their words as written down, and they were quoting it as being applicable and relevant for their day. How much more, now that we have the complete text from Genesis to Revelation, ought ought we to look to it and invoke it as the highest authority, written word of God? So this is a direct quotation from Micah 3.12. And here's what they're saying. This guy Micah, 
essentially stood up and is saying the same thing to y'all as Jeremiah is now doing. Micah also spoke out against Jerusalem. He said, you're going down, Jerusalem, unless you clean up your act. But in that day, the king, Hezekiah, listened and led the people in repenting, and God did not destroy the city. So the implication is, hey, present king of Israel, Jehoiakim, do likewise. Don't kill God's prophet. Respond to him like one of your predecessors did. Hezekiah gave him a break. You give him a break so that God gives, you give Jeremiah a break so that God gives us a break. That's what they're saying. Then they give another illustration about a guy named Uriah. This is not the Uriah of David and Bathsheba fame who lived about 400 years before this. This is another Uriah. We don't know who he is. Uh, but the elders stand up and they talk about this guy, Uriah. And they say, he also stood up and spoke out against you people. He spoke out against Jerusalem and so on. You know what happened then? Under threat of death, he fled and went to Egypt to hide out. Anyway, the king uh, got hold of him, brought him back and killed him. Why are they offering that? I think it's as if to say, look at here. The king in uh, Micah's day listened and let him live and God spared the people. The king in Uriah's day listened and killed him and destruction came. They're essentially saying, Jehoiakim, don't be like that. Listen to Jeremiah. Don't kill him. And then at the end, a guy named, we don't know who, who, much about him, a guy named, verse 24, a guy named Ahikam, who's the son of Shaphan. Shaphan was the secretary of state under King Josiah, and this is his son, Ahikam, who was also a political big shot under Josiah's administration. Here's the deal. Uh, powerful people in high places put there by God. This guy intervenes on behalf of Jeremiah, and thus he was not killed. Was this just a good fortunate turn of events that Ahikam was in that spot? No, no, no. This is the sovereignty of God. He can put his people wherever he wants, high places, low places, middle places, so as to serve his purposes. And Jeremiah's life was spared. So we close with this. Let me, let me, it's kind of an interesting exercise in contrast. You have two servants of God. One is Uriah. One is Jeremiah. Uh, Uriah dies. Jeremiah lives. They preach to the same people the same message. One lives. One dies. Does that mean God had an off day in Jeremiah, in Uriah's time and hit a home run in Jeremiah's day? No. Was God less sovereign with regard to Uriah than he was with regard to Jeremiah? It doesn't happen that way. God's attributes don't come and go. They don't dissipate. They're always, all his perfections are always perfect. He's always perfectly who he is. He's always perfectly sovereign. Uriah preached on God's behalf and died. Jeremiah preached on God's behalf and lived. Why? I have no idea, and neither do you. So we're forced to throw ourselves on the trustworthiness of God. And that's what we're forced to do today and every day. Oh, God, I don't understand. Help me, nonetheless, to trust you. Folks, generally speaking, the reason why Uriah passed and Jeremiah lived is because God essentially said, Uriah, Thank you. Your time is up. Come home. 
And to Jeremiah, he said, Jeremiah, I have still ongoing work for you to do. Not yet. Get back to work. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I think it was that guy. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. So, folks, here's the deal. Do you know if you're a Christian, you're not going to die one second too soon or one second too late? You're going to die right on time because you have a right on time God. There are no unfortunate turns of events for a Christian. There's no accidents. There's no such thing. There surely are vehicles that God uses to bring us home. He can bring, use cancer to bring us home. He could use a car accident to bring us home. He could use war to bring us home. I understand all that. But please don't worship those events as if they're calling the shots. They're not. It's a sovereign God who is. You are immortal. You are invincible until God says, come home. Nothing can shorten your span on earth and absolutely nothing. No, I don't care how much carrot juice you drink. I'm telling you folks, nothing can extend your span on earth when the Father says, come home. Well done. Good and faithful servant. I love this. Therefore, we don't have to go through life kind of like a white knuckle worried about this, that, and the other thing. You know, you read the reports, you got all these toxins into this, into that, and the what? Some of us go, from our point of view, sooner than we think they ought to, but not sooner than God thinks. Listen to me. We had a beautiful homegoing service for one of the heroes of our faith, Hiram Woosley, the other day. Oh, it was just a, it was just a glorious worship time. And he's a hero. Thank God for the span of life he had used to be living proof of a, Loving God. We're always sad because of the separation, but rejoice in the fullness of life he had. But tomorrow, there'll be a service here for an 18-year-old, also a Christian, whose last message on Facebook included Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. So we ask God, oh God, why one way with Hiram? Why not with this kid? And there will be no answer because the Father would say to us in asking me why you're laboring under the presumption that you would understand the explanation. But you can't even get it. You're a kid. You're a little child. Instead, I ask you this. Just trust me. You'll know later. Trust me now. So what do we do? We say, oh God, be glorified through the passing of this youngster. Use what's bad for good. You can. Don't let his passing be in vain in terms of your kind, redemptive purposes for his family, for his friends. I don't know. He's a high schooler. I don't... I don't... To comprehend God is one thing. To trust God is another. I'm not going to comprehend God fully. And I need his help in trusting him. 
That's what we pray. Oh God, help me to trust your kind intentions. If he was only sovereign, that's not good enough. He is sovereign, but he's also kind. The two. It's power, in other words, used for our good and well-being in his glory. It's not just power. You see the difference? Uriah goes early. Jeremiah goes late. Hiram goes late. This young boy went early. God makes no mistakes. Don't bow down and worship a disease process, a heart condition, an accident. Come on, come on, come on. It's God using all this in an orchestrated, redemptive way to call his kids home right on time, but not one minute before. So I called my mother, which you really got to get up for, I got to tell you. (laughs) She's a Jewish mother, so I call her. She's 95 and uh, still telling me what to do. Anyway, uh, so I said, hey, yeah, uh, Sue and I and some people from our church were going to Israel in... uh, January to do some, we're going to do some missions work over there. Why Israel, she says. Doesn't God have stuff for you to do elsewhere? This kind of stuff. Why do you have to go to Israel? It's dangerous. But here's the deal. Sure. Uh, One of God's kids can pass on and die in Israel. And one of God's kids can die later. Uh, over here in Luby's on Fuquay. The safest place on earth to be wrapped up in the arms of the Lord Jesus and let him carry you so that wherever you go, you're with him. Which means whatever happens has to come with his permission. So if he permits it, it's a good idea whether we get it or not. There's no geography on earth where you could be safe. It isn't Jerusalem. It isn't the temple. It's not the church building. It's not the waters of baptism. It's not the Lord's Son. It's personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who is sovereign God in flesh, who makes no mistakes, who's not bound by sick by sickness, by disease, by accidents, by crazy people who want to kill you. He's, he's not, none of that. Psalm 2, the nations of the world conspire against God. He who sits on the throne laughs. So we don't bow before the vehicles God uses to affect our life. We bow before the God who can use every vehicle to accomplish his purpose. See, we're saved from sin, but we're also saved from hopelessness and fear and all this other kind of stuff. When it's time, it's time. Until then, nobody can mess with you. So what are you worried about? Don't do it. Don't worry. Don't worry. Peace I leave with you, Jesus said, before his resurrection and ascension. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Why? Because he's sovereign and he's good.
You see it in Jeremiah 25, 26. I hope you see it in your own life. Lord Jesus, that's the, it. It's not so much we need understanding, but we really do need to see more of you so that we could respond to you in terms of the totality of who you are. Strength tempered by a compassionate, kind, soft heart. Wisdom, which surpasses the wisdom of all the so-called wise people of the world. A vantage point, which makes you the most high God, and from which you miss nothing. Every detail concerning our lives, when we sit down, when we rise up, Thank you for your all-encompassing presence, knowledge, watch care, goodness, kindness, compassion. Oh, God, thank you for life, for as long as you bequeath it to us. And, Lord, we know that it has an end, but not the second life. It is unending. So whenever we pass through here, oh, God, at least let us do so with assurance that we pass through into the second life, which has no end. Thank you for being the God of all hope. Fill us each with joy and peace in believing that we may abound in hope, and this by the power of your Holy Spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessings to you folks. Hey, just a couple of reminders. Uh, The cards are over here on the table.